still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that have, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the graphic nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 2, Episode 10 The Lancashire Ripper, Part 2 Suspects and a Revelation In 1996, the Greater Manchester Police initiated a special operation called Enigma. Operation Enigma set out to look for a pattern in the deaths of several women who were found murdered between Liverpool and Manchester. Their results were horrifying. Of the 207 unsolved murders between 1986 and 1992, 70 were found to be split into 21 clusters of activity. Rather than one serial murderer who had killed Linda Donaldson in 1988 and Maria Requina in 1991, they were possibly looking at as many as 21. Police forces all over the country reopened their cold cases because of the information generated by Operation Enigma. Convicted murderers with a record of extreme lethal violence against women and in particular women working the streets as prostitutes, were high on the suspect list. It is a terrible reflection on our society that there are so many women murdered by their partners, husbands and strangers. This brutal and terrible toll against women is an ongoing daily occurrence, with around 100 women a year losing their lives at the hands of men. Many more end up in hospital with severe injuries, but many, many more are trapped in fear of more violence. Very many of the women who are physically assaulted regularly have children, and those children are often drawn into a conspiracy of silence to protect the abuser. They are told to not talk about what happens within these four walls, but often they comply because they do not want mummy being hurt and believe that by keeping silent, they are keeping her safe. All too often, they're aware that the violent wrath that brings days and nights filled with fear will turn its focus onto them if they try to get official help. It's an unforgivable thing to do to a child, to ruin their childhood with constant fear and the nightly worry that mummy won't be alive in the morning. It's evil. And for those who are saying, but what about the violence committed against men? Yes, it does happen. Around 30 men die each year as a result of domestic violence, with the figures indicating that roughly one-third of those die at the hands of their male partners. Another third die as a result of the injuries following a domestic altercation. And the other third is killed by their female partners after years, sometimes decades, of physical, sexual or psychological violence. All too often, it's all three. This little meander 
into the dark woods of domestic horror is to highlight the sheer scale of the problem. Just where were the police to start? If they were to look at those criminals who had a history of killing and dismembering women or mutilating them, they had plenty to choose from. In 1999, one vile offender stood out above everyone else. David Smith. David Smith is a man who was convicted of the 1999 murder of 21-year-old Amanda Walker. Smith brutalised her, murdered her, mutilated her body and finally buried her remains in a shallow grave in a wood in Surrey. Once more, a young, vulnerable woman was slaughtered for the temporary sexual gratification of a man, and it was, most certainly, for his sexual gratification. On the day Amanda Walker died, Smith had been to, quote, a party for broad-minded adults, end quote, in Ilford, Essex. It wasn't the twin set and pearls swinging set of Surrey, nor was it a gathering of old friends who have the mutual paraphilia of share and share alike. It was a commercially organised event. These are often, but not exclusively, organised by pimps or syndicates of pimps who supply the women for the night. On his way home to Hampton, in the royal borough of Kingston-upon-Thames, Smith was still feeling the need for more fleshly entertainments, so drove to the Paddington area of London. Here he would pick up a pretty dark-haired girl with long loose curls and a cute dimply smile. Amanda Walker had grown up in Leeds as part of a respectable family. Although Amanda was new to the streets of London, her family were trying to get her to give up that way of life. A hope, sadly, never to be realised. Smith and Amanda agreed terms and she climbed into his vehicle. What Amanda didn't know was that the man she was now travelling with had selected her as the woman he wanted to completely dominate. Smith, aside from his day job of travelling the country as a lorry driver, was also involved in the sex party scene with a speciality of BDSM. For those not familiar with the term, and I can't imagine there being many listeners of true crime podcasts who don't know what the initialism means, it stands for bondage, domination and sadomasochism. Those that enjoy this pastime are, primarily, not homicidal maniacs, but loving partners with a mutual kink. There are, as it were, rules, safe words, boundaries, etiquette. It's not the sort of etiquette you will find listed in Debrett's Etiquette and Modern Manners, however. Smith, it is reported, regularly ran BDSM parties and would charge £250 per person per night. When Amanda entered his car, she didn't know that the man driving ran an escort agency of sorts from his mother's house, where he lived with his mother. Nor did she know that her punter had a previous conviction for rape. Most women who work the streets do not like long journeys when doing business. It's dangerous and a sure sign of trouble ahead. The 27-mile journey 
from Paddington to Wisley is inconceivable for a young, petite streetwalker to agree to. It is more likely that within a very short space of time, Amanda Walker would have known she was in imminent and very real danger. Smith was given the nickname of Lurch by colleagues in the haulage industry after a character in the long-running American TV series, The Adams Family, as he stood six feet four inches tall with size 14 feet. The man, although I am searching for another noun for this kind of specimen, towered over Amanda, although she might not have been aware of how much danger she was in as he was sitting down when they met. As there was an hour-long journey, it's doubtful whether they exchanged pleasantries. I suspect that he incapacitated her quite quickly en route. It is most likely that Amanda was already dead when they arrived in Woodland near to the Royal Horticultural Society Gardens. After leaving Amanda's remains wrapped in polythene and concealed in a shallow grave, Smith drove back to his mother's house about half an hour away. He stopped briefly around a mile from his home and disposed of Amanda's blood-stained clothes by leaving them on a footpath. Given his previous conviction for rape, it is either a display of complete stupidity or complete arrogance that Smith should leave the clothing with so much forensic material on it in public. But the clothing would lead police to Smith very quickly. The bloodstains contained the DNA profiles of two people, and one was a violent sexual offender. Smith was in custody before police recovered Amanda. Whilst in the police cells, Smith was put with another prisoner, another sexual offender, Stephen Williams. As is the case with egomaniacal psychopaths, Smith couldn't help but talk about the murder. Williams was so appalled by the story that Smith told that he reported it. Smith's convictions for violent crimes began when he was 20. He was convicted of raping a young mother in front of her children, which is a vile, life-changing experience. I sincerely hope that that family had been given the support that they needed to adapt to life afterwards, but that was in 1970, so it's highly unlikely. He served four years for the life sentence he imposed on that family. On his release, he began working as a minicab driver, unlicensed, of course. Whilst prowling the streets, pretending to be a taxi driver, he picked up a woman passenger. Shortly afterwards, he locked the car doors and began to attack her. Bravely, she fought back against him and escaped by kicking the windscreen out. Smith was arrested for the offence and convicted of unlawful imprisonment and unbelievably given a suspended sentence. He went home the same day of the trial. His next brush with the law was when he hired an escort for a hotel outcall. The woman arrived and soon found her fighting off an attempt to rape her by a man armed with a craft knife. Again, she managed to escape. Again, Smith was arrested, charged and sent for trial. 
Sadly, the woman failed to show up to give evidence. Although it is easy to criticise her decision from the comfort of not having lived through that ordeal, or having to give evidence in open court and thereby be revealed to everyone as an escort, and to face the defence cross-examination, we cannot fully understand her decision not to attend. When the case collapsed, Smith was set free. Again. The story that Smith told Williams, and seemed to relish telling, was how he had wrapped her in plastic, then taken a knife to Amanda and, quote, cut her down there, end quote, before and after raping her. Smith also boasted that his expertise in the martial arts had given him the knowledge of how to inflict pain using the pressure points and how to kill with his bare hands. At the time of his arrest, Smith stood around 6 feet 4 with size 14 feet and weighed 18 stone. His hands were like shovels, so when he said that he had put his hand on her nose and mouth, we can easily imagine her entire face being engulfed by his large hands. Jailhouse confessions are fraught with risk to any prosecution case. The defence can rip the credibility of the witness to shreds in seconds and cast reasonable doubt on the veracity of the testimony. The description of the murder and the horrendous injuries pathologists found on her during her autopsy matched the description given to Williams by Smith. When David Smith stood in the dock at the Old Bailey accused of murder, it wasn't his first murder trial involving the violent death and mutilation of a young woman working as a prostitute. In 1993, Smith had been arrested, charged and sent to trial for the murder of 33-year-old Sarah Crump, who had been found dead in her home in Southall, West London, in 1991. Sarah had been subjected to a vicious, sustained and brutal attack where her killer had mutilated her as she died. Smith admitted having been to her flat, to having paid for sex with her, but denied murder. Sarah Crump was originally from the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln in the Midlands. Like many people, she had moved to London for the better pay and life. Sarah worked as a psychiatric nurse during the day and had a second income from working as an escort in the evenings. The booking that sent David Smith to her flat had come through her regular agency. Sarah Crump had sustained injuries that were almost identical to the scars left from an operation on a woman Smith had been involved with, but who had ultimately rejected him. It was this, and other rejections from women, that caused Smith to kill the prosecution stated. This makes me very uncomfortable. It seems, to me at least, that they are almost introducing a mitigating circumstance whereby the women who rejected Smith were partially to blame for the rage that fueled the utterly abhorrent acts he committed. I find that incompatible with the known facts about this man. He was heavily into BDSM 
or at least the bondage, domination and sadism parts of it. Kinks are a part of the human sexual reality. Some have more vanilla flavours, others for a more extended palate. As with any specialism, it takes a lot of dedication and time to become a connoisseur. It takes practice. It takes knowledge of the full range of activities. It is obvious that he had had enough of an interest and ability to begin making money from it. Bondage, domination and sadism were already part of his makeup. The women who rejected him did so because they were not interested or they were truly frightened by what they saw behind the mask and wanted to get as far away as possible from him. The women who rejected him play no part in his crimes at all. They are absolutely blameless. I mentioned behind the mask because he was, most definitely, a compartmentalised narcissistic psychopath with extremely violent sexual fetishes who saw women as things to be traded, bound, dominated, sexually tortured, killed for the pleasure of it and discarded like rubbish. A six feet four tall, 18 stone monster with no empathy or compassion. A truly hideous, vile and despicable human. His colleagues in the haulage firm where he worked all spoke highly of him. A polite, softly spoken hard worker, conscientious, kept himself to himself, lived with his mother. It's an all too familiar tale. His defence counsel alleged that the police were withholding exculpatory evidence. They also accused the police of incompetence, which the police promptly and strongly denied. In light of the recent debacle surrounding the collapse of many rape trials due to a lack of disclosure of exculpatory evidence, one has to wonder if the defence team weren't onto something. At the close of the trial, Smith was acquitted and went home. The Metropolitan Police closed Sarah's file, indicating that they were sure that he was the man responsible and they weren't looking for anyone else in relation to the crime. During the closing speech, following his conviction for the vicious murder of Amanda Walker, the Recorder of London, Judge Michael Hyam, stated that the killing had been committed by Smith, quote, to satisfy your perverted sexual obsession. You are without pity or remorse. End quote. He went on to say that Smith was quote, extremely dangerous to women and likely to remain so. End quote. Most people won't be familiar with the term the Recorder of London, but it's an ancient legal position in the City of London and is the senior circuit judge at the Central Criminal Court, or the Old Bailey to give it its more familiar name. The post is appointed by the Crown on the recommendation of the Corporation of the City of London, which is a curious state within a state, and the Lord Chancellor. The Lord Chancellor is a position of enormous power and is nominally more powerful than the Prime Minister, but the reality is slightly different, although the power wielded is still considerable. Our current Lord Chancellor is a Conservative Member of Parliament by the name of David Gork. As a brief aside, David Gork has had an interesting career that includes being reported to Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs for advertising a six-month-long unpaid training post for his constituency office in Hertfordshire. 
There was also a faint whiff of scandal around him when he claimed £10,248.32 in stamp duty, a type of property purchase tax for his second home, a flat in London. A Channel 4 documentary uncovered that he was claiming expenses for the flat, despite his own home being only an hour away by public transport. When he sold that flat in 2012, the property price had increased by £67,000. He pocketed £27,000 as MPs only have to pay back on profits made in the previous two years. He has also told the British people that, quote, negotiating a price discount with a tradesman for paying in cash for the purposes of evading tax is morally wrong, end quote. There's a little clip of that after the end credits. So that's our first and very viable suspect, David Smith, a man known as the Honey Monster, which references the character used in the advertising campaigns of sugar and carbohydrate breakfast cereal, Sugar Puffs. His other nickname of Lurch is still used by other inmates in the maximum security prison that holds him. Police interviewed him at length, even going so far as to take plaster casts of his size 14 feet to compare them to footprints found at the scene of Linda's deposition. As promising as this lead seems, sadly the investigation into Smith led to nothing. Smith remains in prison for now. Our next suspect is a rather curious one, and I have to admit that I struggle to comprehend why he was even considered. Duncan Munro McLucky is serving life in prison for the murder of 42-year-old Sylvia Harding in Manchester City Centre in 1989. Sylvia had been unlucky enough to climb into the car driven by this ex-soldier. Once they are in a secluded location, out of sight of passers-by, McLucky strangled her and proceeded to stab her seven times with a skewer. The number of times she was stabbed indicates that there was an element of rage and the weapon itself demonstrates a level of premeditation. But even with these factors taken into consideration, it seems unlikely that McLucky was involved with any of the other murders mentioned so far. McLucky had faced an investigation following a death in the 1970s, following an accidental shooting during an exercise when he was a serving soldier in Northern Ireland in 1972. 1972 was a terrible time in Northern Ireland. In January, a civil rights march calling for an end to the policy of internment for people suspected of being involved with or members of the IRA that had been introduced in August 1971. The march itself was noisy yet peaceful. It is a matter of debate as to why the parachute regiment opened fire with live rounds, shooting into a crowd of unarmed civilians, injuring 28 and killing 14, 13 of whom died instantly. Another victim died four months later from injuries sustained. It's often portrayed as being the start of the troubles, but it was actually the turning point in a long-running internal political conflict that evolved around the treatment of Catholics in the six counties of Northern Ireland. This new wave of civil rights protests had begun in 1968, when there were widespread protests based around race, 
cultural identity and unfair or unjust segregation or discrimination. This was all part of the summer of 68 when protests erupted worldwide. They were all around the same themes, but with different specific complaints at their heart. The protests in Northern Ireland were met with resistance from the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the British military who were stationed there. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association was formed in 1967, following a meeting between various Wolf Tone societies from across the province. Wolf Tone was an 18th century revolutionary who is widely regarded as the father of Irish republicanism. Among those who attended the meeting was Cahill Goulding, who was, at the time, the chief of staff of the IRA. On the 4th of January 1969, a march from Belfast to Derry, or Londonderry, depending on your political affiliations, had been organised in defiance of the appeal from the then Northern Ireland Prime Minister Terence O'Neill to stop all marches and protests. At Burntollet, a few miles outside of Derry, Londonderry, the march, which had been met with counter-protests along the route, was set upon by a group of around 300 loyalists, a form of ethno-nationalism supported primarily by working-class Protestant supporters of the Union with Britain. Of the 300 loyalists who took part in the ambush at Burntollet, around 100 were off-duty members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary Special Constabulary. The march was bombarded with stones that had been bought in bulk from a nearby quarry. The attack was watched by the regular on-duty members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary. They did little to intervene and the attackers went unprosecuted. The incident undermined the reputation of the RUC and led to further riots in Derry, Londonderry and across the province and ultimately led to the recommencement of guerrilla warfare against the British. It was against this backdrop that Duncan McLucky, a signalman in the Royal Signals Regiment, found himself deployed to the active theatre of Northern Ireland. He was stationed at three brigade headquarters in Lurgan. He was part of a group of regular soldiers and RUC officers who were undertaking a training exercise in which a simulated terrorist attack was underway. The exercise was situated near to the border with Ireland, and as such, the soldiers were issued with live rounds and blank rounds. It is usual practice for rifles to be fitted with a special device called a blank firing attachment, which prevents any bullets from exiting the rifle should a mix-up occur. These are, these days, painted bright yellow and look like a boxy suppressor. On the day in question, the 17th of May, no BFAs were issued. Duncan McLucky fired, unwittingly it seems, a live round that struck Warrant Officer Second Class Bernard Adamson in the hand before entering his lower chest, which caused severe internal injuries and his death. McLucky has always maintained that he had never intended to fire a live round at WO2 Adamson. At the conclusion of the military and police investigation, no criminal charges were brought against him, but he was fined £43, around £540 in today's money, under Section 69 of the Army Act 1955, for negligent handling of a firearm. 
In December 1972, an inquest was held in Belfast that returned an open verdict. Open verdict is a term that crops up regularly in criminal investigations and it means that despite the evidence presented to the court, the inquest jury believes that the death was suspicious but is unable to reach any other verdict open to them. A second inquest was opened in 2009, at which McLucky was due to attend, but his counsel argued that his later conviction for murder was liable to make it impossible for an impartial jury to be drawn, and that his conviction should not be allowed to be mentioned during the trial. The judge ruled that all of the information was already in the public domain, to which his counsel argued that due to the passage of time between the events and the second inquest, there would have been a sufficient amount of memory fade for the case to be treated as new evidence. Various arguments went back and forth, back and forth, until the inquest stumbled to a halt. As interesting as it is, none of this would indicate that McLucky was a potential serial murderer. The death during the exercise was avoidable idiocy, as mixing live and blank ammunition in the same exercise was in contravention of army regulations. It was not a practice that had been adopted before, and certainly hasn't been practiced since that incident. So why did Greater Manchester Police regard McLucky as a potential suspect. Sylvia Harding was working as a prostitute and was murdered by manual strangulation before being stabbed repeatedly, and little to no effort was made to hide her body. Which still seems pretty thin, but in his car police found a briefcase, and in that briefcase were several items that caused a great deal of suspicion to fall upon McLucky. Inside were a hammer, more skewers, a piece of wood and two ace of spades playing cards. It's speculated that Sylvia wasn't his only victim and that the cards were going to be left as a calling card or signature behaviour, but that he was stopped before making it to the point of signing his kills. This line of inquiry came to nothing too. Our final suspect, at the moment at least, is Derek Brown. Brown was convicted of the murders of 29-year-old DVD seller Xiao Mei Yu, and I do apologise for the pronunciation, and Bonnie Barrett, a 24-year-old woman who had been working as a prostitute. The two women disappeared within three weeks of each other. Their remains have never been recovered. Brown's motivation for the murders was, it seems, a potent combination of sex and a desire to emulate Jack the Ripper and other serial murderers. In the weeks preceding the first murder, Brown had borrowed the book Killers, The Most Barbaric Murderers of Our Time by Nigel Cawthorn and studied it carefully. The notoriety and comparison with Jack the Ripper went so far as him selecting victims from the Whitechapel area and convincing them to return to his flat in the Burnham Court, Rotherhide, which is just south of the River Thames. It's around a 20-minute journey from Whitechapel to Rotherhide and well served by public transport. And whatever ruse he used, worked. I wouldn't know where to begin with how to lure someone somewhere, but that's because I'm not a predatory misogynist intent on causing harm. 
Evidence from his flat suggests that the women were dismembered there prior to being disposed of, and despite Brown's extensive efforts to clean the flat, traces of blood from the two women were found in every room of the flat. His defence was one that even the redoubtable Marshal Hall would have struggled to get past the jury. He claimed that the two women had been to his flat, but that during both visits he suffered a home invasion in which he witnessed masked assailants murder them. The investigation was led by Detective Chief Inspector Mark Candia of the Metropolitan Police. He said after the trial, quote, To be a witness to a murder is quite rare, but to witness two in your own flat in the space of three weeks is almost impossible. Derek Brown targeted these women because of their vulnerability. He thought no one would care. End quote. These were vulnerable women. Bonnie was a single mother of one who had, as is all too often the case, become addicted to heroin and turned to prostitution to feed her habit. Zhao Meigu was a mother of two young boys who had arrived in the UK as an illegal immigrant. She had been selling pirated DVDs in the street. Both women were on the fringes of society. Both were involved in trades that would have placed them at considerable risk. Their decision to go with Brown was their undoing. It's speculated that he dismembered them using a bow saw he bought specifically for the task, before throwing their remains in the river. Brown's previous criminal record points towards a very disturbed individual with a history of sexual offending. He was jailed in 1989 for breaking into the flat of a young woman in Preston, Lancashire, where he raped her after threatening to harm her young child. That wasn't his only conviction, as he had been found guilty of burglary as a juvenile. His home life had been chaotic. He was one of ten children and spent most of his childhood in care homes and special schools. After leaving the care system, Brown took work in a number of manual positions. Labouring and driving were among the casual jobs he is known to have taken. His personal life was quite unsettled too, as he fathered seven children by four different women, one of whom he married. After his release from prison for the rape, for which he served five years of the seven-year sentence, Brown immediately left Preston and moved to London. Quite what Brown was up to criminally during the years between release and arrest is unclear, although police believe that he is responsible for six serious sexual assaults and another six rapes. It's highly likely that a man with a record of violently assaulting and raping women had committed more serious offences before his arrest for murder. His work as a driver would have taken him around Lancashire and the surrounding counties. Brown is from Ribbleton, a suburb of Preston. It is around an hour away from both Manchester and Liverpool, so the possibility of him being responsible for Linda Donaldson's murder is fair. But without further evidence tying him to the case, such as access to a well-lit, spacious lock-up where he could torture, murder and dismember without being disturbed, it becomes a little more tenuous. His 1989 conviction rules him out of any of the subsequent murders 
committed in the five years he was confined. Derek Brown, like many sadistic killers, refuses to give details of where he disposed the bodies, thereby maintaining a sense of control over them, even in death. Whether he took that behaviour from the book he borrowed from the library is very doubtful. The man clearly had a penchant for rape and violence towards women. His move to London, whilst for many it's a chance to start afresh and reinvent oneself, was undoubtedly a move to richer hunting grounds for vulnerable women. His pattern of offending would indicate a strong desire to hurt and claiming that one book was the tipping point is, well, laughable. However, it is known that he had an interest in serial killers in general and had actually read about them extensively. But again, an interest does not a killer make. There are millions of people who, for many different reasons, read about these monsters, watch films, contribute to online discussions, and like you now, listen to podcasts about them, without ever feeling the need to emulate them. There are, of course, those members of society who will use materials such as this to fuel their deviancy, but that facet of their personality would have already been manifest before the murders begin. At the conclusion of his trial, the judge, Martin Stevens QC, said, quote, You have shown not a slither of remorse. You murdered two women. Both were vulnerable, plying their trade on the streets, in each case falling into your hands precisely because of their availability and their lack of protection. What you did to each of those women before you killed them, we can only speculate about. How you killed them, we cannot know. What we do know is you disposed of their bodies with frightening efficiency, so that not a trace of either woman has been found. Whilst there is no direct evidence of how you disposed of their bodies, there is clear circumstantial evidence that you dismembered them or disposed of them using equipment and materials you bought for the purpose. The only person who could prove this not to be true would be you, if you ever chose to tell the police where their bodies or remains could be found. The anguish of both victims' families is exacerbated, made much worse by their inability to lay each lady to rest. End quote. In handing down a 30-year sentence, rather than a whole-life tariff, Judge Stevens explained that he had considered such a sentence, and whilst there must have been an element of premeditation, the required features for such a sentence had not been fully made out. Police continued to question, on a regular basis, Brown for information about the whereabouts of his victims. But he refuses to cooperate. He will be eligible for release when he is 78, if he makes it to that age. Of the official suspects, these three have been of particular interest, but there are many others. In 1996, police were linking the deaths of Linda Donaldson and Maria Roquina, apportioning them to the same killer. But by 2008, their position had shifted. Greater Manchester Police's cold case unit was headed by Martin Bottomley, 
who said, at the time, quote, No undetected murder is ever forgotten, and we focus on and strive to solve them. The passage of time is no reason to shelve an inquiry and give up. As far as Linda Donaldson is concerned, it is not for us to judge her lifestyle and opinions on such matter are not a barrier to investigating this terrible crime. Murder is murder, and this is a woman who had family and who was loved. There are many reasons for reviewing unsolved crimes, not only because of the important forensic advances, but also because potential witnesses can yet come forward. Allegiances change as people get older. They may have felt an urge to protect someone at the time, and that has now gone. Perhaps people have information which they did not think was relevant, or were too afraid to come forward with. But be assured, it is not too late to come forward now. We would be very receptive to anyone approaching us with new details and possible lines of inquiry that would lead us to tracking down this offender. I am convinced someone out there knows who killed Maria and we need them to come forward. As it stands, there are no forensic links between her death and Linda's. But we do have forensic material in both cases and we will continue to investigate. Without a name to put to the material and the nature of the woman's work in which they would have worked with hundreds of men, it is very difficult to detect. If we got a call from someone who said it was this person, then a lot of progress could be made in both cases. The cases will never be closed and we will not stop until we find out who killed Maria and Linda. We do get people ringing us regularly, even without appeals. They might be talking to someone about something slightly unusual they remember in the past, which prompts them to call us. I would urge anyone who has had such thoughts to get in touch with us. End quote. This has been said many times, but someone knows something, and through fear or misplaced loyalty, they might have found themselves willingly or unwillingly or unwittingly part of a conspiracy of silence. Abusers and criminals thrive in silence. It allows them to go unchecked, and they depend on everyone who is silenced to remain silent. But people can and do escape from the cloying blanket of silence. This can be a very dangerous time, as abusers must enforce the silence to protect their position. Sometimes it takes years for enough time to have elapsed for people to come forward. It is my sincere hope that someone is brave enough, determined enough, to bring whoever is responsible for the murders to justice. I also hope that anyone living under a conspiracy of silence finds a way to escape from it. Earlier on, I mentioned that there were other suspects. Next time on Still at Large. If you have any information about these crimes, please call 101 and ask to be put through to the cold case unit at Greater Manchester Police. 
You can also leave information anonymously by calling Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111. That's 0800-555-111. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is researched written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. There is also a Facebook page for the podcast, which can be found by visiting facebook slash stillatlargepodcast. The theme is by Duke Deck and online music AI at dukedeck.com. Incidental music was written and performed by Russell J. White. Links to his catalogue are in the show notes, and some was created by me. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. just seen the, the the telegraph i'll hold up for the cameras it is morally wrong uh, quoted attributed to you to pay tradesmen cash in hand what do you mean by that if the window cleaner comes around you can't you can't pay, pay them 30 quid in cash of, of course you can and and, and 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 people do and will continue to do so the specific point and i'm not sure in truth the article has reflected that the specific point i was making is that when a tradesman says you know here's a 10 percent 20 percent discount on uh, your bill if you pay me cash in hand. That is facilitating the hidden economy. That's as big a problem in terms of uh, loss to the exchequer as tax avoidance. Uh, that is uh, meaning that revenue isn't being paid that should be paid. And you, you've never done that, paid. unlike millions of people presumably across Britain. I've never said to a tradesman, uh, if I pay you cash, um, I'll, can I get a discount? No. Do you think any of your uh, colleagues uh, have done that? I don't know, but I, don't, I, I think if, if people do do that, they have to do so with the you know, recognition that that means that taxes will be higher for the rest because uh, that hidden economy is a large part of the tax gap.